Thank you, Gigi. Beautifully, beautifully read. And thanks, Jill and Kathy and Kendra. Just Sometimes we just need that, don't we? To calm down and just listen and, and uh, just hear some beautiful music. Let's pray together. Father, we are asking that uh, you render our hearts to be tender and teachable. We ask that you uh, bring to mind your word and uh, your direction. We submit ourselves to you this morning. We take the time this morning to gather together on, on uh, Sunday morning to, to proclaim your love and your resurrection and the great sacrifice. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your, that you have uh, taken notice of us. And even when we feel uh, small and vulnerable and at risk, maybe threatened, that we can find safety and protection in you. And that in your will and in your kingdom is the safest place we can possibly be. So, Father, we ask that you uh, give us the courage to take risk, to reach out to people around us that may make us nervous because we fear rejection or because we fear that we will misrepresent you, but that uh, we can depend on the Spirit who promises to teach us and your promise of the covenant that is written on our hearts and that you have replaced our hearts with hearts of flesh and not stone. And so, Father, we are relying on those promises, and we are also um, here to uh, proclaim the hope, the hope that uh, you are working, that you have uh, made a promise that is everlasting, that we are not into some vicious cycle, but that there is a um, purpose that you have called us. And so, Father, we're asking you to empower us. We ask that you take the time this morning to uh, speak to us through your scriptures and that you convict us, but you also encourage us, and that you refresh us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, um, idols back in the ancient days, they were pretty easy to identify. Uh, when you're looking at, um, you know, the, the idols of Babylon or whatever, the ones that infiltrated Israel, they're pretty easy to, watch, to see. You know, they're objects. But that's really what idols are. That's, uh, they're just objects. And uh, they don't really require anything of us. And uh, it's one reason why they're so popular. Uh, because they don't really demand anything from us. Uh, we may worship them. And especially in Babylon, you know, they may worship them. And they're easy to see. And, but when it comes down to it, they are worshipped because we expect to get something out of it. We expect to be blessed financially or protection or whether we're going to war or, or going out for, uh, um, you know, to, to catch a fish for our, our market or whatever it is, we expect something from them. But basically, we can ignore them if we want to. We, we don't have to pay attention to them. And uh, they're just kind of objects. And what they've done is they basically tried to take, take God and put it in this, this thing, this, this object here. Uh, but they're really pretty, pretty, uh, pretty useless. Uh, basically, what they represent is our wants, our, our uh, desires, things that we want to have. Uh, and basically, they're representations of our narcissism, you know, to put it bluntly, to put it clearly. 
uh, whether it's, uh, whether it's a, a statue in, Babylonia or in Babylon or uh, whether in, in modern days it's, it's fame or fortune or bank accounts or um, things or, fa- or, um, or people perhaps. Uh, it's something that we want out of it. It's just kind of a reflection of our, of our narcissism. Uh, their only function is to take something that's supposedly divine and, and deity and really make it into something concrete. And uh, yeah, we don't really have those statues that we see back in the, you know, back in these archaeological finds and things like that. But we have them, you know, today is, you know, is, as much as anything. Uh, I just saw, according to the BBC, that the, the 10 richest men in the world, uh, they have gone from um, 700, a wealth of $700 billion to $1.5 trillion just in the pandemic. Somebody profited on the pandemic. Uh, that's like if they were to make a million dollars a day for 1.5 million days. That's how much they have increased their wealth. Now, I don't know what the idols are. I mean, the idols can be all kinds of things. It could be, you know, these days it seems to be a rocket going into space. Uh, but whatever it is, it's still just a reflection of our narcissism, and that's all it is. It's just a product of that. But the God of the Bible, we know, does, is, does not stand by and take that light lying down. Uh, he is an active participant, and he does not uh, take, the, take that lightly, take idolatry lightly, and we know that. He is not some passive participant in whatever we desire, whatever we want. And that's really what he's trying to do when we looked at this, this, po- this large poem from Isaiah 40 to 55. We see God actively dealing with this. And his plan from the very beginning was to rule the world through his image bearers, us. Uh, but we all know that went horribly wrong at the very beginning. And so what he did was he called a family. He called Abraham and said he was going to, to, uh, to restore that through this family. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And that was the plan. But it turns out, of course, that Israel has the same disease as everybody else. And that didn't catch God by surprise at all. But he is still faithful to that covenant. He is still faithful to the covenant. That's what Isaiah basically defines God's righteousness as being faithful to the covenant. So he still plans on doing that. He still plans on, on saving the world through Israel. But he's doing it in an astonishing way, in a way that no one expected, that no one thought possible. Yes, God, Yahweh, is the God of Israel, but he is the God of Israel for the sake of the entire world. And the way he does this, that we see in Isaiah, just blows our mind. If we were just to read this, just for the, for the first time reading it, we would never have anticipated it. Uh, that's why this poem is so great. N.T. Wright says that, it's, that I mentioned this earlier, that if archaeologists had found this poem in a find, in a, in a dig somewhere, it would be the find of the century. It would be one of the finest examples of ancient literature and ancient poetry that we've ever found. But because we have it in the Bible, we kind of just gloss over it. We kind of just almost ignore it. Or we read it and go, yeah, 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 yeah. But if you stop and look at it and meditate on it, it is just so incredibly beautiful. And the way he's going to do this is through what, he, what Isaiah calls the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. And we are introduced to this, this, this large poem in chapter 40 with comfort my people. Comfort, oh comfort my people. And then the rest of the, the chapters in this poem is telling us how he's going to do that. How he's going to comfort his people. 
And he, so he introduces us to this figure in chapter 42 of the servant, and it's a royal figure, and he talks about ruling the earth with the strong arm, but then the right after that verse, he says, but he will be gentle as a shepherd who takes sheep next to his breast. And then you go on to 44, and you see him as, as this, this figure who's, who's going to accomplish what, he, what he's been called to do, but at the same time he's going, is this going to be in vain? Is this really going to work? And so then Isaiah sharpens the focus even more in chapter 50 where we have the, the servant being smitten and beaten and yet vindicated in the end. And then finally we come to 53 like we did last week and we, have this, we see the servant even sharper in focus where he is a lamb led to the slaughter. And he has taken everything that is wrong with human beings on himself. He has exhausted the power of evil in chapter 53. And if you're your normal Israelite reading this for the first time, you're going, how does this work? But this is how the servant will do it. This is how he will do it. Well, we come to the last two chapters of this great poem, chapters 54 and 55, and here we see the results of all this, the result of the servant taking all this on himself. And uh, I just had 55 read. We're going to spend most of the time in chapter 55 this morning, um, but we want to look at chapter 54 too. And what he's doing here is basically saying, through the servant, the covenant will be renewed. There will be a new covenant. And then in chapter five, not only will the, chapter 55, not only will the covenant be renewed, the entire creation will be renewed. So what he's saying is that because of the work of the suffering servant, we have a new covenant and we have a new creation. And so we're just going to look at chapter 54 sort of from a bird's eye view of chapter 54 of the New Covenant because we can't spend, I mean, we, obviously you can spend lots of time on both of these chapters, but we're going to kind of combine them. And so you have uh, How God Became King, Part 2, chapters 54 and 55. The covenant is renewed in chapter 54, and it, it, the creation is renewed in 55. In chapter 54, he, he, he summarizes this New Covenant in three images, three wonderful images that, uh, that are tough. First, the barren woman becomes fertile. And he talks about, he's kind of comparing Israel to this, this barren woman. And of course, in the, in the ancient times, a woman who did not have children, who was barren, not only was it sad and disappointing for her, but it was also shameful for her. And he's saying Israel is like this barren woman, totally empty and sad and, and maybe even shameful. And if you can imagine the Israelites coming back from, from captivity from Babylon and, and when, when they're allowed to come back to the homeland and they go back to Israel and they see nothing but buildings that are empty, you, want, you just can imagine what a despairing feeling that would have been just to say, oh, from what it used to be. And God is saying, yeah, but then he goes on to say, you gotta, you're going to have to enlarge your tents. You're going to have to increase the tents. You're going to have to make the buildings bigger because it's going to be full of people. And not only is it going to be full of people, not only is it going to be full of Israelites, he says the nations will be there, the nations will come. God is expanding this new covenant, not just to Israel, it's going to expand to the world. And we see that, of course, in the New Testament. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about, that it's going to expand, that Israel will enlarge through the Messiah, through the Jewish servant, to where it will cover the entire nations, the entire world. And we see that over and over again of, of Jesus telling his disciples that you will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Sermon on the Mount ends like, the, like, like 
Moses ends, when Moses was on the mountain and he looks at the promised land and he tells people to go take the promised land, well, Jesus is on the mountain and he looks at the whole world and he goes and tells his disciples, make disciples of the entire nations. And then in Acts 1, he's talking to his disciples after the resurrection. He says, go back to Jerusalem and from there you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will become my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth with the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to do it through the whole world. And so it's going to be like what these empty buildings is now Israel is, is chosen for the sake of the whole world through the suffering servant. The second image is the forsaken woman. It's re-betrothed. And he talks about the woman being, being sent away. And, and if you remember in Malachi, God says, you know, when a, when a man sends his wife away because he's found somebody else more interesting, God says, I hate that. Well, this is what happens, that there was a separation between God and Israel, but it's not God who was capricious and found something more interesting. It was Israel who found somebody more interesting and left him. But he says, I will re-betroth you. You will be my wife again. And he gives these names, these great titles of himself. He, he, um, in, in, when he's talking about this, he says, remember, I'm your husband. And he goes, I'm not only your husband, I'm your maker. I am the Lord of hosts. Eugene Peterson calls them the Lord of the army, of the angel armies. Uh, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He gives us all these titles and, and I think Isaiah is inviting us to say, okay, slow down here and you need to contemplate on some of these titles. You need to reflect on some of these titles because each one is loaded with meaning. But he says, that's who I am and I am re-betrothing you. I am reuniting with you. Why? Because of my steadfast love. And over and over again he repeats, but with great compassion I will gather you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Verse 10, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And then at the end it says, the Lord uh, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Over and over and over again because of his deep love he will bring them back in spite, in spite of their unfaithfulness. He will re-betroth the woman, and finally, the destroyed city will be rebuilt. And he just, of course, these metaphors just go over the top. That's one reason why I love Hebrew poetry and, and, uh, and Hebrew literature. They just go over the top, and you have these pictures. And he, he talks about the, the, Zion, the city of Zion that is in ruins, and yet it will be rebuilt with sapphires and rubies and, and precious stones, not only in the gates, but in the foundations and in the walls, and it'll just be brilliant. And where else do we see this? In Revelation 21, we see this same picture. The city will be rebuilt, and it will house all people. And he goes on to say the children will be taught by Yahweh himself. This is kind of the picture we get from Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when Ezekiel, and they say this, he will take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, and I will write my laws on your heart. Yahweh will teach the children himself. And it's all because of his faithfulness, not yours, he says. So we have this renewal of the covenant. And it's not this covenant that says, okay, if this one fails, we'll do something else. It's not a vicious cycle. This is the one that's permanent once and for all. This is the covenant. This is the covenant that will bring it about. And that's the whole point of this, these whole passages, is that, that this kingdom of God, the renewed covenant, will be brought by the accomplishment, the achievement of the suffering servant.
who will rule with strength, but it will be a strength of sacrifice and service. That's what's amazing. And then we get to chapter 55, and we have the new creation. 50, uh, yeah, 50, 54. Sorry about that. I think I mis, misplaced that. Or left it, it's 54. Chapter 55, he gives us two invitations, and he gives us two pronouncements of good news. The first invitation is, everyone who thirsts, it's time to come. It's an invitation to anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is hungry, he invites them to come. And of course, Jesus picks up this in John chapter 7, uh, where he says, he's at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and the priests, they even quote Isaiah at this Feast of the Tabernacles, and then Jesus stands up in front of everybody and he says, hey, you know, uh, you just experienced the best Judaism has to offer, this, this giant feast, lots of fun, lots of food, lots of, lots of singing, but guess what? If you're still thirsty, come to me, he says. If you're still thirsty, you come to me. And he talks about running after them. And they are to run after him. And he, what he's saying is, is you're running after things that don't satisfy. You're spending your money on things that really aren't bread. You're, you're running after stuff that's really not going to do what you want it to do. You're running after idols because this is what you think you want but it doesn't satisfy. You've got an itch that you're scratching and you're going about it the wrong way. And he's saying, this is here. This is real life I'm offering you. I'm offering you real life. And he, he, he pulls out David, the, the promise that he made to David. And, he, and we, as we see in Psalm 2, which is repeated over and over again in the book of Hebrews, that this promise, it's because of this promise that he made to David. And then he says, this promise I made to David... I'm now making to everyone. It now goes out to everyone. And I will set him, set him the king in authority over the nations. But it's an authority that we don't really understand. And I, I feel like, you know, as, as Christians, we should get this, but we don't seem to get it. It's a, it's a different kind of authority. It, it's a it's a suffering authority. It's a serving authority. It's a saving authority. It is a prophetic authority. It is a redeeming authority. Very, very different than what the world sees as authority. Very, very different. And he said, this is how I will rule. If you're thirsty, come. And he says, if you seek, you will find it. He says, this is the second, this is the second um, invitation in verses 6 through 9. Seek him, and he will be found. Seek him while he'll be found in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. And then he goes on to say, and I will abundantly pardon you. And I was stuck with that. I thought this over this last week, what does it mean to abundantly pardon you know, what does that mean exactly? Um, usually when we think of pardon, it says, hey, I'm sorry. You know, you go, yeah, don't worry about it. You're, we're cool. You know, that's, that's kind of how we look at pardon. That's kind of how we look at forgiveness. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. Well, this is an abundant pardon. And the only thing I could think of is, is, is the interaction Jesus had with Peter after the resurrection. And Peter is there seeking forgiveness, and we know the story. Jesus says, do you love me? 
three times, and Peter says, yes, you know I do, and then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And what I'm thinking is this, that when God abundantly pardons us, he doesn't just say, okay, we're good. He says, I'm going to give you responsibility. Amen. You are so forgiven that I'm going to have you work for me. I'm going to have you do some things for me because that's because I, I trust you. I believe in you. I abundantly pardon you, and I'm going to give you another chance. In fact, I'm going to give you a job to do. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with abundantly pardon. That's how we get pardon. And then he goes on that famous verse that it's because your thoughts are not my thoughts, and, and my ways are higher than your ways. And when we come to that verse, we rip, that's one of those passages we rip out of its context. And we think, when something happens that we don't understand, I don't understand why this happened, well, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You know, God's ways are, are different than our ways. You just have to live with it. It's a mystery. God works in mysterious ways. And I, that's true as far as it goes. But I think there's more of a challenge here. I think there's more of an invitation here. And that is, you need to think like God. We need to think like Him. We need to have His thoughts into our head. We need to learn how to think like God. We need to learn how to think about authority like God. We need to learn to think about forgiveness like God. We need to think like Him. And again, I think Peter might be a good example here. Remember when Jesus said he was, uh, he was destined for a crucifixion and, G and Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. And, and, and Jesus rebukes him. It's because Peter is still thinking like a human being and not like God. His thoughts are not the same as God's thoughts. And that's one of the reasons we study the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons why we come together is that we learn to reset our default mechanism in our mind. That we have this way of thinking in our mind with idols, that they're objects that I can pay attention to or not pay attention to, but this is a new way of thinking that we can't just ignore the Savior. We can't just say, yeah, we're good. We have to learn how to think like him. And he says, you, you need a God's eye view of this. You're hungering and thirsting for things that don't work, that are not healthy for you, that are not good for you. In fact, they may even be harmful for you. You need to think like me. You need to think like God. Because I offer water and food and life and light and comfort with the theme of Isaiah. The last section of the, the, last section of the chapter 55 in, uh, in verses 10 to 11, we have two pronouncements, 10 11 and then uh, uh, 12 to 13. And the pronouncement of the good news is the word will accomplish the work of the new creation. He promises that the word will carry it out. He says the word is like <clears throat> rain and snow that comes on the earth and the seeds germinate and the seeds grow. And that's how the new creation will come about. The word will accomplish exactly what he wants. Remember in, in, in the past chapters, uh, Isaiah says, you know, the grass is going to wither, the plants are going to die, the, you know, the breath of God can just can, can burn the grass if he wants to. But the word will last forever. This prophetic word will come out and it will finish the job. It will do the job. And of course, we know from John, I, I mentioned before that I start, I'm doing John in the, the morning, just my, kind of my own personal 
uh, devotion time. And maybe it's just because I have John and Isaiah both in my mind going on. I just feel like those things need to be read in tandem. Those two books need to be read together. And uh, you look at John who says, well, the word is, is, is incarnate, is embodied now in a person. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 17 and John chapter 4? He says, he says, I have come to do the work of my father. And I will finish the work that he gave me. I will finish that. And then, of course, on the cross, what does he say? It's finished. The word will finish and accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The word is, is prophetic, but it's also royal. It's Davidic. It's, it's, it suffers. It bears the weight of evil and sin. It, it brings justice to the nations. It will accomplish what he intends to accomplish. And he has accomplished what he intends to accomplish. And the result in verse 12 and 13 is the curse is reversed. The curse is taken away. It's taken away. It's reversed. And this, is, this is what we see through all the servant songs, this promise, this, uh, this faithful covenant, the embodiment of the word. It, it will reverse the curse where they had these wonderful images like in Psalm 96 and 98, these wonderful images of mountains and hills singing and trees clapping. Uh, Sue's even done a painting of that, of, of the... The, the earth itself actually cr crying out and singing in joy because the curse has been reversed. And he kind of draws our attention back to Genesis 3 where the curse has a, and, and where, where the hard work becomes really messy after the fall. And he says that the earth is full of thorns and, bri and briars and thistles. And God is saying in this new creation, the thorns are going to be replaced by cypress. And the briars are going to be replaced by myrtles. Down in East Texas, we have a whole forest of cypress trees. And they're just thick as, you know, you can't even see it. You can't see the forest for the trees. That's what it's like. It's beautiful. It's kind of swampy, but in the, at night it's kind of scary. But at the, in the day, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And he says that's what the thorns are going to be replaced by these cypress trees. And the, and the thistles and the briar replaced by myrtles. The suffering servant will bring about the new covenant and the new creation. It has been inaugurated. It has been launched by the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And the fruit of this, the, 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 the fruit of the, of the suffering servant passages is this renewed covenant, this renewed promise, and this renewed creation. But what about us today? For us, he says that the the new covenant is like snow and rain coming down and causing the earth to flourish. Well, I believe that the taproot for us to experience and flourish in the kingdom of God today is living in the presence of Christ. The taproot for us to flourish in the kingdom is to live in the presence of Christ. Christ says he has come, the Bible says that he comes and he will reign over the earth until all the enemies are put under his feet and the ultimate enemy, the final enemy, is death itself. And we can live in the kingdom and flourish in the kingdom by living in the presence of Christ. Jesus expands on that idea. He says if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you, you ask, you seek, and you knock. 
You ask and it will be given. You seek and it will be found. And you knock and it will be open. What Jesus is doing here is it's just expanding a little bit of Isaiah 55. This is what we do. We seek. This requires a change in the way we live, a change in the way we think. We can go ahead and go with the idols, which is our kind of default, our default mode where we kind of just live with the objects around us and pay attention or not pay attention. Or we can say, I need to concentrate and, and realize what it is to seek God and live in the presence of the Savior all the time. And that's the, Jesus' parables are full of like that. It's this, it's this seeking after the coin. It's the merchant who, who sells everything he has to buy this field because there's this pearl there. It's this uh, <clears throat> looking after everything. It's this, the shepherd who is searching after the sheep. It's father who, who, who is trying to restore his two sons. And yes, it is vulnerable. And yes, it is risky. And sometimes I don't know if I'm more afraid of missing the kingdom or finding it. I, I think both those two things kind of bring a little bit of fear in me sometimes. But we have to take that risk and be vulnerable and live in the presence. It's not a technique. I'm not talking about a feeling that we're trying to look for. I'm talking about a mode of existence, an attitude, a life. That Jesus, God said he was present in the garden, and then later he was present in the tabernacle, and then he was present in the, te present in the temple. Well, now he's present in the suffering servant. And for us to enjoy the flourishing of the kingdom, we have to live in the presence of the servant. In John chapter 1, going back to John again, I know, I'm, maybe I'm repeating myself, but going back to John again, at the very beginning chapter, uh, John the Baptist is preaching and he has his disciples, and there's a couple of disciples with him now, and, and uh, I'll just go ahead and read this passage I put up here. Gazing at Jesus, he, John the Baptist, walked by and he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard him saying, they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned around and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And so they said to him, Rabbi, which translates teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus answered, come and, I will come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. That little story is kind of interesting to me. I mean, if you're, you're, these two disciples are there, and Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? I mean, no small talk, no nothing. It's kind of like, I almost get the feeling, you know, you turn around and go, what are you looking at? You know, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about it. Some translations read, what, are you, what do you want? But I really think what do you seek kind of captures in English a little better the idea of what he's asking. Uh, what do you want is, uh, may not be the same thing of really what I'm truly seeking. What I want is when I turn to idols and I, turn and I give in to my narcissism. That's what I want. When I was in my 20s, I thought I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be a biologist, and I wanted to marry my girlfriend. And then uh, <clears throat> my girlfriend broke up with me. And uh, it's a long story. I'll tell you about it sometime. But <laughs> <laughs> Let me lay down on the couch here, and I'll... But I thought that's what I wanted. I really did. And I was so caught up in what I thought I wanted that I missed what I was seeking. Because what I was seeking was really uh, just the unconditional love of another human being, of another person. And I missed it because my friends came around, and we had, I had great friends in college. I had great friends that are still my friends in, you know, 30, 40 years later. 
wonderful people, and I missed it, at least at the beginning, because I was so caught up in what I thought I wanted, and I missed what I was seeking. And what I'm seeking was just acceptance and to be loved for unconditionally by someone. And I found someone who did, besides the Savior. <laughs> so I think it's good that we be honest about what are we truly seeking. And he says, what, and I think that's what Jesus is asking these two disciples, what are you seeking? And so they ask him, where are you staying? The idea there is, where are you abiding? They weren't asking for what hotel you're staying in. They weren't asking, well, where are you couch surfing these days? They're asking the rabbi, and that's one reason I think John put that in there. They, they called him rabbi. They're asking, where, where have you put up shop? Where have you opened up a business to train, to, to, to train disciples? And then Jesus gives us the most simple invitation possible. Come and see. He doesn't give them a theology lecture. He doesn't uh, give them some abstract ideas. He doesn't give them some abstract philosophy. He says, come and see. And I think that is the most simple, simple uh, invitation that he can give. Come and see. You're thirsty. Think about this. And this is exactly what Isaiah is saying in 55. You seek him. You seek him while he can be found. You listen to what he says, Isaiah says. You come and see. You live in the presence. Yes, Jesus is offering you living water. Jesus is offering you bread that nourishes you. He is offering you life. He is offering you light. He is offering you the love of a Savior. He is offering you and showing you the heart of the Father but you have to be present to get it. You have to be with him in order to receive it. If you're apart from him, you won't. It is a simple invitation. Come and see. Come and see. And you will lose what you think you want and you will find what you are truly seeking. He's saying, stop spending money on bread that won't satisfy you. Stop spending stuff on things that won't, won't satisfy you. Stop running after stuff that's really not going to do you any good. And this is not some theology thing that, that I'm saying this morning. It's not some, some abstract philosophy. It's not some theory. It's real life. It's real life day in and day out. It's concrete. I read a story this week about a monk in his 90s who every morning he gets up and the first thing he does, he gets up after he dresses, he goes outside and he touches the earth. And he does that, he says, just remember who I am and where I am and I worship somebody greater than me and I want to be in his presence. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good technique or bad technique, I'm just saying that's what he does to reorient himself to where he is. That's where he is. I, I read an, an, um, an article this, <clears throat> this last week on the particularity of the church is what it was called. And what, that, what they're getting at is that is the church you know, still special, a particular, you know? 
And the argument was that these days you can find God anywhere. You can find God in the creek. You can find God on the hikes. You can find God outside, in, you know, in your neighborhood, at, at, your, at your dinner club or whatever. You can find God everywhere. And I go with that. But sometimes you can find, if you go down to the comments on some of these, these blogs, the comments are more profound than the article themselves. And this one comment with this one girl, she says, well, let me, I'm going to go ahead and read it because I want to get it right. She says, I'm all on that. Christ is everywhere. She says, but then I wonder, would we notice God's presence everywhere if we didn't practice noticing it somewhere? And he says, go, she says, going to a particular building on a particular day at a particular time helps me practice noticing God everywhere. And I thought that's incredibly profound. That's incredibly true. He says, we practice, we practice seeing by seeking. We practice the living water by seeking. And we practice the presence of God right now with the music, with the scriptures being read, the noise of the children in the other room. We practice the presence right now. We practice it today. If you get on the website of any church, including ours, there will be a tab that says, our beliefs, or this is what we believe. What do we believe at Shepherd of the Valley? Which is fine. But I wonder if we should substitute that with just a phrase that say, find out what we believe by coming to see what we do. And by coming to see what we do, that we come and we practice noticing God. We practice living in the presence of Christ. We practice when we sing. We practice when we converse. We practice when we, when we talk to one another and we, uh, we encourage one another and we hear the scriptures read. We practice noticing God so that we can notice him everywhere. So if you're here this morning, or you're listening at home, then it means that you are seeking something. <laughs> you are seeking something a little bit deeper. And so I'm saying, listen to Isaiah. The covenant's been renewed. The creation is being renewed. Incline your ear. Listen. Know the titles. Know the maker. Come back to the husband that yes, he challenges us to live with a fullness of joy when all the other voices are telling us to despair. He's telling us to uh, love that person in our lives when they really don't feel that, they really aren't that lovable. It's, he's, telling, he's calling us to love this broken down world and that we hope to see it whole and we hope to see the hills singing and the mountains uh, shouting and the, and the trees clapping. And we hope for that. And the only way to do that and live that way is to live in the present. It's like a taproot that in order to flourish in the new creation, it is living in the presence of the suffering servant, the one who gave it all up for you and for me simply because he loves us. Living in the presence, that's the taproot to help us flourish and experience the kingdom of God today that Isaiah talks about 1,500 years ago. No, 2,500 years ago. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this beautiful poem in your book. And we 
don't do it justice when we just skim over it. But Father, we ask that you wash us with the word. Father, it is our desire to be in your presence at all times so that we find what we're truly seeking. In the name of Jesus, amen.